0: We're going to be in Joshua chapter 6 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and find our passage, and uh, while you're turning there, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, Do we have any Lego fans in the house today? Awesome. That's the most Lego fans we've had all morning. I know that's hard to believe with our 815 crowd. Uh, Okay, so let's go here. How many of you have at least had, if you don't like Legos, you at least have kids that have liked Legos? Yeah. All right. Now who's stepped on a Lego? All right. Yeah. So we've, we've all had experience with Legos, uh, but Lego people, you're my people. I grew up with Legos. I love putting Legos together. Uh, still kind of do, uh, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, so what I, what I've learned with Legos is that there's really two types of Lego people. Okay. Lego person number one right here. Okay. Lego person number one. When they get the box, they carefully open it, and then they proceed to take out all the different packages of all the the bricks and pieces. They separate them all out into colors and shapes and sizes so that they know exactly what they have and exactly where it's at, and then they pull out the instruction manual, and they'll go through it page by page, and they'll look at each and every single picture just to kind of get a preview of what they're about to build because they're about to create a Da Vinci masterpiece out of plastic bricks. Okay. And then Lego person number two is just a ruthless animal. I don't know. uh, This is the type of person they get the Legos are like Legos rip open box. What are you doing? I don't know what's happening now. Just tear open all the plastic. The pieces are everywhere. And they just kind of scoop them into a pile and they're like, let's build a fort. It's time. And why do they build the fort? so that they can throw stuff at it and tear it down. That's really the only, those are the two types of Lego people. And we see how chaos can come when when we're trying to put these two things together. But today in our story in Joshua chapter 6, the fall of Jericho, a familiar story for us, we're going to see how God is both simultaneously building up his people to glorify and honor him, while he is simultaneously bringing down his enemies. And in this story, we're also going to see how trusting and obeying God leads us to victory. So let's go ahead and jump in this morning to Joshua chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. It's going to set the tone for us, the stage of what's about to go down here at Jericho. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel, none went out and none came in. We're going to take a second and we're going to kind of break down the historical context, the the geography, because I want us to see first off that as we open this chapter, conquering Jericho seems to be an impossible task. Conquering Jericho seems to be an impossible task. We see here from verse 1 that peace is out the window. Jericho has closed off its walls. They've, I, I can, if, you're, if you're going back to that time, they would have had two gates. They probably have built a wall where their gates should be, and it is closed off. They have told their people, no one is leaving for any reason, and no one comes in for any reason which means no one is leaving to go to the Israelites to try to seek out peace and they are not letting anybody in to come talk about it. They are declaring war. What else do we know about Jericho? We know that Jericho is a well-fortified city with thick walls built up on a hill. We know that they were well-supplied with food and water, spring-fed water, so that they could outlast any enemy that may try to come against them. From a st- strategic standpoint, the Israelites, if, we're, if, we're, if they're gonna attack Jericho, here's what they would have had to do. The Israelites would have had to attack them from a visible plane where they, the whole time they're camped out here, Jericho, the people of Jericho have seen them so it's not like they could surprise attack them. They would be running uphill. They would have to go over an embankment. And then once they got to the actual walls of Jericho, they would either have to scale the walls or find a way to get through the gates that had already been closed off. All this while being shot at from above by archers with arrows. Strategically, They're not in a great position. We also know that the Israelites were lacking in the arsenal that it would take to pull off such a feat. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They don't have battering rams, they don't have ladders that would help them scale the walls. They just don't have the equipment to be able to pull this off, not to mention their vulnerability. They have a new leader. Moses, who's led them out of Egypt and and for the past 40 years is dead. And now this guy, Joshua. Who's Joshua? We've heard the stories of Moses and how he went to the Pharaoh, but who's Joshua? God has taken away the food supply of manna. And he's called all the men to be circumcised. And if that's not enough, if they they even were to decide to attack, what they'd have to do is all their men would have to leave the camp, leaving the women and children behind, unguarded. This seems to be an impossible task. We're forgetting one thing here. What does God have to say About this. Let's look at verses two through five. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. Conquering Jericho seems to be an impossible task, but... God makes a promise. God makes a promise. This is a done deal. Notice in verse two, when, when the Lord says to Joshua, see, does he say, I will give you Jericho? I might give you Jericho. No, he says, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's past tense. See, with God, this is a done deal. It's not even a question. God speaks as though it's already happened. I don't know about you, but sometimes in life, there can be situations, things that seem impossible to me things that come up in in my personal life and our family and and just life in itself. And and it feels like everything's raging against you and, and there's no hope in sight. And typically when that's happening, what we've done is all we have done is focus on what is right in front of us, the present of the moment. And the problem with just focusing on the present and the struggle is that we miss out on what has already been done and what is to come. See, we we forget if we're so caught up with what our problem is and we're focused on the present, we forget the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we forget the future hope of Christ and his return. So, if you're finding yourself in an impossible situation right now, remember this the I am said, it is finished. Not, it will be finished, or it might happen, it is finished. Past tense, done deal, not a question. And his promise that he makes comes with a command. And this is where it gets interesting, because God and his sovereignty, he doesn't need the Israelites to be able to take out Jericho. He could do it on his own. And yet, he invites the Israelites to be a part of his plan. See, the Israelites have proven themselves to be faithful. Uh, They've done what God has asked them to do so far. So, God says, Okay, I'm going to let you be a part of the plan. Great. So, what is God's great military strategy that he has for these people? All right, let me break it down for you. It's It's a pretty complicated plan. Involves lots of moving parts. So what they're going to do is they're going to send out a group of defenseless priests with trumpets who will then lead a parade around the city carrying a box for seven days. And on the seventh day, they're all going to go, you all know this isn't a great military strategy, right? If, you, if you've studied the history of wars at all, you're, you're not gonna come to all the great generals. it's like, and then we were facing a battle in the Pacific, and then we decided, let's just make the boats go in a circle. And then on seventh day, we're all go, ah. You will never find that in any general's history of any war because it's not a military strategy you would use. I mean, this military strategy won't even get you past level one of Clash of Clans. That was the best response because no one else knew what Clash of Clans was this morning. And and I'm... Well, I'm still weird. I was gonna say, I was weird in high school and I played both football and, high, and, and I was in the band. And I, did, I did both things at the same time. And there was a lot of Friday nights where we went in the locker room and you know maybe I, I played defense. Our defensive coordinator would come up and he'd go, guys, it's been a rough first half. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go out and we're gonna get the trumpet section and they're gonna start on defense in the second half. That was never a part of the strategy for victory. But this is God's plan. And you can even imagine Joshua right now, right? This, this great man of God who has led the armies in the, in the desert. When there's been people that have attacked him, he's been a part of defending the people. He's been, he's been one of the spies in different instances. You can, you can probably hear him thinking at each of these little pieces. All right, so... You shall march around the city. He's like, great. And then we attack. Nope, you'll go back home. All right, and then we're going to do it again. Oh, great. And then we're going to sneak attack from the south. They won't expect it. They'll be watching the box. No. Just at the end of everything, it's like, not only do we have a trumpet section, but at the end of this, we're just going to start a choir. seems foolish. But isn't it interesting how God has a way of using things that seem foolish to us to humble the wise and mighty? See, God had a plan. It wasn't a military strategy, but it was a way to honor and glorify him. But now we have a plan in place. We have we have a God who has made a promise, and now we have a God who has now made a command to his people. And now the Israelites have a choice to make. So let's see what they do in verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun. See, we see here that Joshua didn't know who, who his dad was. Just kidding. with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priest who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, "'You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout.' So he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually and the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. It seems like Scripture is just repeating itself. But that's the beauty of it. God had made a command. And why doesn't it just go, and the Israelites did it? Because God wants us to see through his word that the Israelites were faithful to make sure that they followed Every single part of God's command. See, Joshua and the Israelites trust God's promise and obey his command. How do we know that they trust God's promise? Because they obey his command. And by obeying his command, they show that they trust God's promise. It works together. Trusting him leads to obedience, obedience shows our trust. And despite not knowing what was going to happen, they're faithful. Each and every single day, they're obedient. They wake up in the morning and they do exactly what God has called them to do. And each of these days, does anything change? No. See, this is the other hard part, isn't it? See, God, call, God promises us, and then he calls us to be faithful and, and trust him and be obedient to his command, to his word. And I know for a lot, of, a lot of us in this room today that there's a lot of things that are going on in your life. Some things that probably other people know about, probably other things that people don't know about. And every single day you wake up in the morning and you get yourself ready to be able to do exactly what God has called you to do, And you ask God, God, I have this going on in my life. We have this enemy in our house. We have this thing going on. Please help us. And and, and you just follow and you trust and you're obedient. And then at night you come back home and you lay your head in your bed and nothing seems to have changed. And you wake up the next day with hope. God, today, please be the day that you make a change. You try your best to be obedient. You try your best to follow and trust in his promise. And yet, it doesn't happen yet. God through waiting, God through having them walk several days is showing them that they need to be patient and wait on the Lord. See, the beauty of the promise of God is that it's going to happen at the perfect time. And we need to be reminded too that we can trust in God's promise, knowing that it may not come today. And every day, our job is just to wake up and choose to follow Christ and just say, yes, God, yes, whatever you call me to do, whatever, you've, whatever you told me to do, I, I am here to trust you and obey you. And God, I know that it might not happen today, but I trust in your promise because you've made it and it will happen. So what happens? Let's look at the seventh day, verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city." Joshua and the Israelites trust God and his promise. They obey his commands. And that leads to God doing something that only he could do. God does something that only he could do. He keeps his promise. He does what seems to be impossible. And in doing so, by not using the strength and the might of the Israelites, what he does is he exalts his name and his glory and his strength. See if you can finish this line. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. When I think of battle, I think of two opposing armies. Battling it out. Goes a little bit this way and a little bit this way. It's a back and forth. There's uncertainty. But what we see here is that there's not really a battle. It's just done. And that makes me think that maybe there's something a little bit different, something a little bit interesting about God's battle plan that we need to pay attention to because it might show us something that's going on with how God is working in this people. Because it does seem so strange that this would be the battle plan. So here's here's four things that, that you might think are interesting here. And if not, I'm still gonna say them anyway. The priests. The priests were supposed to be exempt from fighting. Old Testament states that they're not to go to battle because they're supposed to be in the temple and perform the rites and rituals of of all the things that they need to do to honor God. But we see in our story that they're leading the march. Two, the Ark of the Covenant The Ark of the Covenant was not to be used in battle, and later on it's going to be tried to use as as an instrument of battle and war, and it's going to cost some people dearly. But the Ark was not supposed to be in battle. But here we see that it's a crucial aspect of the march. What about the horns, the trumpets that are being used? Israel was in possession of silver trumpets that they typically used for battle to be able to call the people together, to be able to march them out, to send signals to all their people so they would know what's happening. But they don't use the silver trumpets. They use the ram's horns called Jobel. The same as the root of the word jubilee. They were used in Celebrations. And then fourth, how many days did they march? Seven in a row. Which meant that one of those days, possibly the last day was the Sabbath. Which the Lord God had told them not to do any work on to honor him. But here they are marching. So, if it's not really a battle, what type of event would require priests? The presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant, instruments and voices meant for celebration and the Sabbath day. This wasn't a battle. This was a worship service. See, God had already fought the battle. God had already determined what was going to happen. God had already declared that Jericho had fallen. God was just fulfilling the promise in front of them. And what the Israelites were doing was just honoring and glorifying the God who was fighting the battle already for them. But, but how, does, how does Joshua, how, how do the Israelites get to this point when they, when they go, God, We've got, a, we've got an enemy in front of us, and they're strong. And you're telling us to do something very interesting. How do they get to the point where they can just say, God, we trust you? There's got to be something missing here. And I think the answer comes in chapter 5, just before the start of chapter 6. as is the last scripture we're going to look at, last point for today. But we, we say, how could Joshua and the Israelites show this kind of faith Look at Joshua chapter five, verse 13 to 15, right before we get to this. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And Joshua did so. Joshua could trust God for the outward miracle because of the personal time he spent with the Lord. Just, just try to get into the mind of Joshua for just a moment. He's a new leader. He's, he's only been doing this for like a month maybe. Maybe. Not, not that long since Moses has passed. It's been a quick turnaround. Moses is gone and now all of a sudden here he is on the doorstep of an enemy where he's got to lead his people and they're looking to him and they've already declared that they will trust him and follow him just as they followed Moses. The weight of that responsibility, the, the pressures, the, the anxiety that you could you could think he's probably feeling at this time of making sure that he's trying to do everything right to follow God exactly how he's supposed to. You, you can imagine him up late at night just thinking and, and pouring over the maps that the, the spies have given him uh, to, to see where, where the weak spots are, what we're going to do, and maybe the generals and the other commanders of the army are there with him, and they're, they're trying to piece together. If we send these people here, these people here, maybe we might be able to pull this off and in those moments he's like guys I just need to take a break I just need some fresh air I need to get out of here this is just too much it's overwhelming I need to go clear my head and step outside and as as Joshua walks out of the tent as they're planning what they're about to do and he, he he looks up at the walls of Jericho and he's just wondering he's God what do you want us to do and all of a sudden there's a man He appears out of nowhere, carrying a sword. Who is he? Who is this man? Are you friend? Are you enemy? You know, Joshua's thinking as the soldier, hey, if you're on our side, then what are you doing out? You should be back in your tent. You should be back, you know, fall in rank, soldier. If you're our enemy, then you're about to get a face full of swords. Very quickly, though, in, in the answer, says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Something changes in Joshua. He falls on his face and worships. See, we know that this isn't just a soldier. We know that this isn't just an angel. Joshua knew the law. He had walked with Moses. He had spent time following Moses around as as Moses was leading. And when Moses would go in and spend time with God alone and he would come out, Joshua would follow in and spend time with God too. He heard the story directly from Moses' mouth about the burning bush and how God had called him to lead his people out of Egypt, about how the burning bush said to him, you are standing on holy ground. And in this moment, as he comes face to face with this man, Joshua, knowing that he should bow to no man, but only to God, falls on his face and worships him and calls him Lord and surrenders to obedience. In this critical time of decision and uncertainty, God incarnate, we know him as Jesus comes to meet with Joshua. We know that this is God because of how Joshua responds. The same God who had come to Moses to help give him the strength to lead the people out of Egypt has now come to Joshua to lead his people to victory. Joshua could trust God because he had a personal relationship with him. What's amazing is that our God did not leave us on our own against an impossible situation. He made a promise and he fulfilled it. Jesus humbled himself, came to earth and brought down the walls of our enemy, sin. He did so on the cross. And our response to Jesus is to trust him as our Savior, and obey Him as our Lord. Victory is on the horizon when we look to the cross.